Hello, everyone, and welcome to Minute 18 of Season 5 of Movie Rob Minute, the daily podcast where we yippee-ki-yay our way through the 1990 Bruce Willis action flick, Die Hard 2, Die Harder, one minute at a time. I'm Rob, and joining me once again today is Alan Sanders of The Wilder Ride. Welcome back, Alan. Thank you so much. Uh, it's, you know, some days it feels like it's just the next day, and sometimes it feels like a week goes by. I can't believe how I just pine away waiting to be it, back. Sometimes it feels like a week. Sometimes it feels like a month. You know, it, it just it's, it's always different every single time. You know, sometimes it actually feels just like a few seconds. But you know, and that, that's rarely with you. You know. <laughs> well, I, I know, I know my, I know my character. Thanks to my wife, is a lot of people need what they call decompression when they get done with me. <laughs> They've got to walk to a different place and go. All right, I need to. Is that is that that's like our heads don't explode? Is that what you're saying? You know, like in like in License to Kill. Maybe. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I don't know. All right, so minute eighteen <laughs> begins with uh, Thornburg parking it, and ends with a bloody face getting the zipper. I'm definitely going to talk about that last shot. Yeah, that's a, that is a. I I I didn't. I mean, we'll, we'll, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but uh, yeah, I I never noticed this before, and I've seen this movie dozens of times. You know, never noticed it, but that's why we do this minute by minute so that we can actually catch the things that you know we weren't expecting to catch. <laughs> we ended things yesterday with Thornburg getting a little sassy with with the stewardesses who throw it right back at him. And we ended it with one of the stewardesses saying to him, park it, sir. He goes, fine. And then he, he starts to sit down, you know, in the seat. You know, the, the stewardesses give each other a look like, okay, we, we've, we've done it. We've been able to, to, to get this guy, you know, to, out of our hair, basically. And then uh, he looks around <laughs> and, and Holly smiles at him. <laughs> Which is really, really strange that she does that. And then he jumps up as this happens. One one of the things I want to point out, one of the things I want to point out is how good this sheepish, like, boy who's been put, like, almost in timeout by parents. The look on his face initially of being just scolded and double teamed by the two flight attendants to then be forced to take a seat. He's just like, oh. That's right. He's almost like a baby. <laughs> well, because he's, he's not he's used howdy. to not getting his way. That That's entirely what it comes down to. Yeah, it's so great, though. But he's not fuming. Like, he's not in a huff, and he's not, like, red-faced with a vein. He just looks so defeated and just... Yeah. He looks so sad. It's, it's kind of pathetic. Which I think is on purpose. It's great. Because it definitely, once again, we talked about this yesterday. If you never saw the first Die Hard and you knew nothing about this subplot, you knew nothing about him and Holly or anything, he conveys so quickly what just a, a weeny, whiny, weak yes. kind of a person he really which, is. Which we know. <laughs> you know, that's, that's the way he is. <laughs> and, and like, mm -hmm. it, so it's great that, that he just, like, looks around and then sees Holly there. And she's just smiling right at him. And then he jumps up from his seat and he goes, stewardess. And then she turns around and goes, Mr. Thornburg, you cannot monopolize my time. She, once again, says it very forcefully to him, which is something he's not used to. And it's also, he's not used to being the person who's, you know, running for affection. He wants people to be, you know, catering to him, not waiting for, for him to, to run after somebody or try to get someone to do something. 
I, I just I'm going to reinforce what I said a second ago. I think if I'm the director, if I'm sitting there, it feels like what I've said is okay, ladies, you're the school teacher, and and Dick, you're the schoolboy, and you need to act like you're the schoolboy because. When she turns on, she goes, you cannot monopolize my time. It's like a teacher saying, okay, I have 30 other students. I can't just focus on you. And he doesn't realize it because he wants everyone to be catering to him, to do what he needs to do. And Mm -hmm. and I I guess it sort of makes sense from from his perspective. It's, it's, It's not right. But, you know, from his perspective, that's the way it should be. You know. (laughs) And, you know, she at and then at this point. You know, now I, I have a big question here. They basically brought him back to his seat. Okay, that, we, we can we can agree on that that this was his seat that they brought him back to because he's complaining that he wasn't in the first in first class. Oh, you're bringing up something I never even thought of until this very second. How would he only just now be noticing how? Forget about that. Let's let's go let's go even further in there. Okay. I, I checked and a a flight from LAX to Dulles approximately, obviously it's gonna be it's gonna vary a little bit, but it's approximately about four hours and fifty minutes. Okay. That's five hours. Okay. John is already at the airport waiting for Holly. Okay. John does not seem like the type of guy who's gonna show up really early for you know to, to to pick her up. So he shows up when he thinks that her plane is supposed to land. All right. She calls him and tells him that we're going to be about a half hour late. The mm-hmm. time has moved from then, but that, that doesn't matter. Okay. But let's let's go even with the minimum. He theoretically should have been sitting there for at least four, if not five hours, <laughs> right. if not longer. Right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and only now does he notice that in the same row that he is sitting in, there's this woman, you know, who just uh, a year or two ago knocked out his teeth. You know, something. It, there's something wrong here. You know, if oh. they if he was in first class and they 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 uprooted him from a seat and said this is you can't sit here, you have to go elsewhere. Okay, I got it. But they didn't. You know, they're making it seem as if he was he's being brought back to his seat. That is so, such a good catch, <laughs> That is such an amazing catch because I didn't even think about how it doesn't really fit story-wise with the narrative that we would have to swallow. Because even if you go, well, maybe he was sitting in first class until the person whose seat he was sitting in showed up. But like you said, it doesn't fit the timeline. If John's already at the airport, he's probably showing up within 30 minutes of landing, figuring, you know, I'll just make sure I get a spot and make sure I'm not late. But he's not there four hours before the plane's supposed to land. That's right. He's, you know, so there's he's, no he's moving way, around from seat to seat. There's no <laughs> way that somebody was forgot to go sit in their first class seat until this moment, and then this kerfuffle happens, we have to assume, before, because he makes the comment about, well, okay, I get you overbooked first class, but I still get a first class meal, don't I? I mean, you're right. Right, exactly. He must have been sitting in either business class or coach, wherever he's sitting. He must have been somewhere else. Now, is it possible? Let me ask you this question. For the sake of giving the movie a pass, can we explain this? Was he maybe relegated to a seat further back and got himself so worked up, he decided, well, the meal cart's gone up. 
we're, we're halfway to L.A. I'm going to go up there and demand my meal. And then they're just putting him in an alternative closer seat just to sit him down. I can buy that. If only it would have been added into the dialogue. Because <laughs> like, well, then the dialogue would have, they would have said, <laughs> no, if only they would have said, okay, Mr. Thornburg, you can't sit in first class, but here, here's an empty seat. Sit here. You know, this no, is business class. Different. We'll let you sit in business class. That would have been, that would have worked. They'd have been like, yeah. I, you know what? I don't know that, first of all, obviously, as many times as I've seen this movie in real time, it's never bothered me until this second. It's obviously not a huge problem. But when you slow it down, suddenly it becomes a massive plot hole. <laughs> exactly. Because it's something that we should have, you know, it, it just, if they were at the beginning of the flight, if, you know, if, if Holly hadn't been on the phone with John, okay, mm -hmm. they're on the plane. Right. Who knows how long they're on the plane. But now we know how long they've been on the plane, approximately. And it right. just doesn't make sense. Right. It would even, it would have worked even if they had been taxiing. And they were forcing him back out of first class that he's been arguing the whole time. They're taxiing like, sir, you got to get to a different seat. You can't sit up here. But you're right. They've been in flight. They established with the shot yesterday, the, the beautiful miniature shot. Uh, they're in flight. They are not even they, they've been in the air for a while. Correct. So I, I don't know how they're going to explain this. one. For anyone who's who's listening and doesn't understand how people do movies by minute, we're doing this as praise to the movie. You know, we're not looking for, for plot holes in order to, to say this is a stupid movie or anything like that. It's just fun to look at things that, that people normally don't pay attention to. And oh, I, that's and the think, purpose here. And I think my comment is I never noticed it running in full speed before. It's only because we're slowing right. it down. And it's fun to look at. It doesn't in any way ruin the movie. And in fact, the acting job between these two and the pacing, it's perfect. Because as I mentioned... It's reestablishing who he is. It's setting up this relationship. And think how quickly it's doing it for someone who's never seen the first movie. It's it's really well done. It's just yeah. <laughs> when you lay it on the timeline, it doesn't work, but everything else does flow. Correct. That's true. You know, and, and so I mean, the first thing I looked up was, you know, she the, the, the stewardess says to him, you cannot monopolize my time. All right. So I looked up the definition of what is a monopoly. Now, we, we know about the game. We're not going to go into the game. Don't worry about that. We we talked about that during The Great Escape, how, you know, they had Monopoly games that, that they were using to help escape from uh, from prison camps in during World War II, you know, that, uh, you know, they had all these hidden stuff in the games that they were sending to uh, to prisoners of war. Okay. But just the, the definition of a Monopoly, what what would you say the definition is? Well, uh, from a business or fiscal perspective, it's when you have either eliminated or you have no competition. You can corner the market, and by having a monopoly, you can charge exorbitant prices because there's nobody that can beat you at the market. So you can really take advantage of your clients or customers. Right. Okay. That, that, I mean, the, that's essentially the definition that I'm about to read. A, a monopoly is a situation in which there is only one provider of a specific good or service. Okay, I don't know how that really applies to, you know, the, a stewardess, <laughs> but mm -hmm. okay, <laughs> it's it's fine. Well, it makes this, sense it, in the context. In the context, it makes hundred percent sense. Right? Yeah, because what they what you're basically saying, and this and this is a phrase that I grew up with hearing that. I don't know if it's as used today, but when you think of a monopoly, it's a sole possession. You have sole control of everything. 
And when you're saying you're monopolizing my time, you think that you can have sole possession of my time. I, I have to, there's, there's competition out there. You don't get to be the only person. Everybody else in this plane requires my time too. So I, right. I, have, I know that phrase growing up hearing it. I don't know if it's still used as much today, but it, it never, it didn't seem um, archaic to me because I did grow up with that term. Right. Exactly. No, no, it doesn't sound archaic to me either. It's just, uh, you know, it, it, it works well here, but I just was thinking about, you know, that, that that's generally not something that, that someone would say in a normal conversation. You know, I don't think that, that if I was ever having a conversation with somebody, that the word monopoly would, would be used in my vocabulary, even if they're wasting my time. I would say you can't waste my time. I wouldn't say you can't monopolize my time. You know, I have to deal with other people. Go back to what I said. It's like she's a a school teacher scolding a child, and maybe that's why she's doing and using that word. It's very, it is kind of, it does come across as a little condescending. Like you cannot monopolize, like using a big word and trying to put him back in his place. And so it it still works in that direction of, I'm the adult, you're the child. Sit down and shut up. (laughs) Yeah, more or less, more or less. And. Mm Then, I mean, his response is, he says, you know, and he like whispers it because he's embarrassed. He says, you cannot put me near that woman. You know, which is great. <laughs> and then she goes, excuse me? <laughs> you know, because she's, she's like love is- really surprised. Excuse me? Like, like, are you telling me that you can't sit here? And again, going back to what we were just talking about a few minutes ago, she's probably saying to herself, what do you mean you can't sit here? You just sat here for the last four and a half hours. <laughs> what, what has changed what what i like about the framing though of the shot because she looks kind of incredulously she's like what are you talking about and for just a split second again if you don't know which particular person that he might be referring to you've got an older woman in a shawl sitting next to a, a younger woman but neither one looks particularly brutal or in any way kind of a, a scary figure but the idea that maybe she's trying to who, which of these, which woman? That's right. <laughs> this it's the old lady. <laughs> you know, <laughs> she's been she's been stalking and if, me. And if it wasn't for Holly volunteering, we you know you would wonder if the stewardess is trying to figure out who you're talking about. Right. I mean, I Mom? think I think we would eventually figure it out. You know, I think they would tell us uh, at some other way. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, even if it wasn't Holly who wants to to give out the information. You know, and then Holly basically, as you said, decides to explain. And, you know, she's not embarrassed about it. That's the great part about it. She's, you know, she's saying this in front of everyone in business class. You know, he's he's trying to keep it mm-hmm. uh, on on the uh, on the lowdown, you know, because of the fact that he is somewhat embarrassed about this whole thing. But, you know, think about it. He's the male. And we find out he's the one who filed the restraining order on her. Correct. Like, I can't have this woman close to me. She could hurt me. It's not, usually you think of the reverse. Usually when you're thinking of a male-female and there's an order of protection or something, it's usually because the male has been violent or the male has uh, done something that has put uh, a sense of fear or a fear of you know, your own safety or concern or that of your children. Normally, it's the male who's like, you know, the female files it on the male, but it's the exact opposite, which, by the way, was funny, even in the theater, like recognizing, oh, dang, it's because he filed it against her. 
it seems so counterintuitive to what you would expect. Correct. Correct. I mean, the. And the other thing, if you watch the way she responds while she's telling the story, Holly does a great job here. She's initially talking to the stewardess and her eyes, you can tell she's, she's making eye contact with the stewardess, but halfway through explaining, she looks over at him yes. and has that smirk of satisfaction. It's, it's yes. awesome. It is, it's priceless to watch. Yeah, it's great. It really is. Cause, cause her response is, he means he's filed a restraining order against me. I'm not allowed within 50 feet of him. And then he goes 50 yards. 50 yards <laughs> but but you're right the her her eye her eye movement is amazing here you know because she is basically mm-hmm. smirking at him you know at this point we get a little bit of a glimpse to the, the yeah. fact that she's on you know an old-time laptop and she has uh, maybe a calculator next to her or uh, maybe it's a little adding machine or something like that you know doing ceo stuff which which obviously makes yeah. a lot of sense that that is what she should be doing you know now that now that she's in charge of the company. So I, I, I wanted to, to go a little bit of into the whole idea of a restraining order. I thought like, you might. What a surprise, right? <laughs> do, do you know of, of another term for it besides a restraining order? Um, I know from what I do uh, and what I've done volunteer-wise with some of the uh, kids and uh, uh, helping families and children from child abuse, they call it orders of protection. That's another thing that's at least that's a legal cause, the orders of protection. Yes, uh, or a protective order. It's the same thing, just, you know, pushing it around. It, it usually, are, it's situations that involve uh, either domestic violence, child abuse, assault, harassment, stalking, or sexual assault. Um, I, I guess in this case, uh, you know, it's assault. You know, he decided to, uh, you know, to file mm-hmm. file against her uh, about it. Now, the, the law is very in different states, different counties, different uh, cities, you know, it, it, there's there's nothing that's uniform uh, around around the U.S. of how this works. You know, the type of relief that a person can get with this order is also differs. There are a lot of places that don't enforce it, which uh, you know can cause a lot of problems. Also, the court can also order a certain party to refrain from from certain activities or actions. You know, that they need to to find some way to comply. And stuff like that. Sometimes they need to stay a certain distance away from somebody, uh, or of the, the from their home, their workplace, school. Which obviously, that that's what we're talking about here. She's not allowed to go anywhere near him, but he's the one who's actually close to her here. Yeah, you you'd think maybe mm-hmm. they would have seen each other, you know, when they were boarding, <laughs> when they were waiting to board. <laughs> one would think, once again, going back to your uh, problem that you've you've yes. discovered in this whole scenario. <laughs> I mean, did you know that that you can even did you know that, that you're not allowed to, if, if you have a, a restraining order against you, you're not allowed to send flowers or gifts or drinks or anything like that to the person? Right. It's, it's no contact whatsoever. Yes. Correct. One of the things that I know they'll do a lot of, and it's more of a nuance, they'll do what's known as a TPO or a temporary protective order, because what they're hoping is with maybe some time apart, especially like in a domestic situation, it gives them time for maybe getting counseling and treatment. The court wants to keep families together, but if it's a situation where you've got a violent spouse or a violent family member that's going to try to seek help, they'll still put a TPO in place, and it's an incentive to stick to the program because if you violate that order, you could go to jail, and they know that. It's not just a piece of paper. It's an incentive to maybe stick to the program or to, you know, so they don't have to always be permanent 
uh, orders of protection. They can be temporary. Right. I mean, part of the whole thing also is is that that sometimes you'll get a temporary restraining order, you know, until the the courts can actually go through the situation and and make a decision. You know, they you know Correct. some for some whatever reason you know it needs to be done. And okay, so for the next week or two, we're giving a temporary uh, you know restraining order, and then we'll have a you know, we'll we'll go to court and, and have a, a discussion about it and find out the whole thing about it. Now, what's very interesting is is that the standard of proof of of a restraining order works the opposite of you know what we've always learned about uh, you know innocent until proven guilty. The burden of proof in most states is that the person accused um, has to basically establish their their innocence. You know, the, the accuser doesn't need to prove their case, which is in some ways dangerous for people who, who actually haven't done anything. Part of the problem, because there's such a low burden of proof, there was even a case in 2005 where there was a restraining order against David Letterman. Did, did, did you ever hear about this this strange uh, case? Mm. So a woman living in New Mexico filed filed a restraining order against David Letterman because she was claiming that he was abusing her because he was speaking to her via coded messages from you know his uh late night show <laughs> and and the judge granted the restraining order because you know it was it was on letterman mm. to prove that he wasn't doing that See, that's completely nuts you know here's the thing while we're having the conversation i totally understand why you need some degree of latitude, especially when it's abusive spouses or an abusive uh, boyfriend, girlfriend, that you don't want to err on the side of putting somebody that could put another child or another adult in harm's way until things can be investigated and resolved. So you err on the side of caution, but you do make up an interesting point that due process is kind of turned completely around yes, in this case. Correct. And they even found out afterwards, they asked the judge and the judge admitted afterwards that he granted their restraining order, um, not on the merits of the case, but because the petitioner had com completely filled out all the required uh, paperwork. You know, it wasn't, they said, okay, she filled out everything like she should have. So, all right, we'll, 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 we'll give it. So it, it's, it's a little strange. <laughs> That's just the case. Sometimes uh, attorneys will, uh, will use this to their advantage also because it's a way for them to sometimes draw uh, out the proceedings also then to force all communication to have to go through them. And this way, you know, they get more mm -hmm. money from that type of thing. According to, to studies that they've done, what do you think, what percentage of cases in the U.S. on, an, on a yearly basis are violated? Okay, you have a restraining, a restraining order. Oh, our how many, how, what percentage of the restraining orders, you know, does someone, does the person who's not supposed, okay, Holly is not allowed to go near Thornburg? What percentage of Hollies have been in contact with Thornburgs, <laughs> which goes against the court ruling? I'm going to hope it's not as high as you're probably going to tell me. I'm hoping it's like maybe no more than 15%. It is 40%. Wow! Almost half! That's right. And part of that has to do with the fact that there, it's, it's rarely enforced. So when people realize that it's not enforced, they're going to go and do it. So what's the big deal if I break it? No one's going to do anything to me. So I'll just go and uh, get on a plane with Holly. Or, sorry, I'm going to get on a plane with Thornburg. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, it, it's problematic. Yeah. One of the things that people say is that the problem with these, with, with the way that the system works is it, it lulls women into a false sense of security. Because they think that, 
you know, these restraining orders are going to work and it's going to help them. But in the end, if they're not enforced, it doesn't really make much of a difference. There are even states that that automatically have it written in the, the forms that you fill out, you know, that the, the person filing the restraining order is a woman and the person it's against is a man. So I, I don't know what Thornburg would have done if he got, uh, you know, if he had to fill out forms like that. That is the majority of the cases here. You know, it's it's rare that that someone like Holly is going to knock out uh, Thornburg's teeth. <laughs> yeah, but no. I love it. Yes, and no, I no, think, it's, it's you great. Know what? It's great because they. I think she loves it. I think she loves the fact that he's not only being forced to tell the story, but she's able to add the pieces. He's like you said, he was embarrassed, and he's telling the very minimum. I think she's really getting a kick out of doing this. I think you're you're completely right about that. Because think about it, you know, when they when they set up this the, the script here, they decided, okay, we're gonna put Holly on a plane, and what are we gonna do? We're gonna put her on the plane with a guy who put a restraining order mm-hmm. on her, and we're gonna see how that plays out. <laughs> you know, and it works. Mm-hmm. You know, it it helps keep things uh, nice nice and fun because of that. And then they start getting into a little bit of a debate as to whether it's 50 feet or 50 yards. Do you know when the metric system was started? (laughs) No. Um, I do know growing up as a kid in the 70s, there was a push initially under the Jimmy Carter administration to try to adopt the metric system, but that failed miserably, and it's not really come back hard since. Correct. Yeah, there there was an attempt. Okay, so so the the metric system actually came out of the uh, French Revolution uh, because you know that people were looking for a way. You know, up until then, everyone was was doing things the the way that we do that now. You know, with where the, when you're multiplying things, it's not done on a the basis of ten. It makes things a little more complicated. It's still fun, you know, thinking about feet and inches and stuff like that. But French Revolution basically gave rise to the whole thing, which 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 is really interesting to to think about. Mm-hmm. Now, I'll be honest, the one thing I like about the met, the metric system, I love the measuring in terms of list distance. I don't mind even of speed. I certainly don't mind it of weight. But I think the thing I still, no matter how much I converse with friends in the UK, I cannot at all wrap my mind around Fahrenheit versus Celsius. And I think that was the sticking point. If we had just stuck to distance and speed, the United States might have adopted more of the metric system but like saying, ooh, it's hot outside. It's 14 degrees. I was like, well, no, it's it, it's not. <laughs> it's 14. It does seem so counterintuitive. <laughs> You're right. It's, I mean, I live in a country that deals with the metric system. So, you know, for me, Celsius and Fahrenheit is, is also just drives me nuts trying to figure out the difference between them and stuff like that. I, I mean, most you. people use use measurements for, for like you said, either men- length or weight with when you deal with the meter or you deal with the gram. You know, that, that's that's what it comes down to with that one. Mm-hmm. I got to tell you, the one thing I'm, I'm so happy I have a, a smartphone or a smartwatch attached to my phone is all the time I can say, okay, hey, Siri, what's 69 degrees Fahrenheit in Celsius? And it will do it. No, oh, that works. That, that that makes things a little easier. And then there, there's also like non-standard uh, ways of measuring things. Sometimes you'll just say like a, a football field or a football pitch, you know, which is soccer. You know, that that's like the the... the the length of, of certain things. Also, I mean, in England, uh, you know, our, our British listeners will, will, will understand this much better than, than, 
than we do. But the whole idea of, of weight being on stones, you know, that, that if you ask someone how much they weigh, they won't tell you it, they won't tell you in pounds or in or in, uh, in kilograms. They will tell you they're in stones, which I think I, mm -hmm. I, I could be wrong, but I think a stone is like 12 kilo or something like that. Um, you can ask Siri. She'll probably be able to tell you how much a stone is as opposed to. That's funny. Uh, I thought it was 12 pounds. I thought a stone was 12 pounds. Is it? Let me find out. Uh, it could be. Uh, one stone is 14 pounds. Sorry, 14. Okay, 14 pounds. All right, there you go. So you see Jay is yelling at me right now for the last minutes. You know, yes, sorry, Jay. <laughs> a, a stone is 14 pounds, which is 6.35 kilograms. There you go. So I, I guess I've never asked my buds in the UK, but do they use decimals? Because that's a wide range between saying I'm one or two stone. Well, if you weigh 22 pounds, what are you? Are you 1.5 stone or are you... What do they say? I'm less than two stone. I'm more than one. They probably use, but then how do you, you know, am, am I like one and a half stone? You know, that type of thing. Right. Hmm. That's what I'm saying. Do they use a decimal? Yeah, no, no. I understand do what you're saying. Do they have to convert I, their I, head? I, I think they do. No, I don't know. So, Jay, uh, you know, let us know. <laughs> <laughs> My right. wife will say, you got a pair of stones on you, but I don't think that she means it the same way that we're talking about here. Let, let's hope not, you know. So, you know. <laughs> Simon, I know you're listening to. You'll you'll be able to tell us these things. Just don't 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 shoot us from there. You know. <laughs> I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna I'm gonna find this out when we get done recording. I'm gonna text my buds in the UK and I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get an answer on this one because I, I I I've never thought to ask the question. I mean, I know they put decimal points in Celsius all the time. They'll say, oh, it's gonna be fourteen point one or fourteen point two or fourteen point three, which makes it even harder in my mind, to figure out. But I wonder if they do that with stone. I will ask right now. <laughs> yeah, we'll, 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 we'll get back there if we need to. <laughs> and, you know, as, as they're arguing here about the, the, the 50 feet and 50 yards, so once again, Thornburg is acting a little humiliated. And think about it, it's been a very long time. It's been at least a year, if not two years, since this happened. After he says that, he like sits down uh, abruptly in his seat. Which which is very funny to see. You know, it's like he just gives up. He's like, all right, there's nothing I can do about that mm. one. And I'm just... You left one thing out where he tries to flip it around and say to the stewardess, technically, if you... Because he's trying to figure out how do I get back in ah, the grass. Right. Okay, if all right. So, so listen, one second. Right. You're right. You guys. <laughs> <laughs> it's on you. It's on you. All right. Because then he says, so by yeah, keeping me guys. in this section, you're violating a court order. I can sue you and this airline. This woman assaulted me, and she humiliated me in public. <laughs> and, and then, then he sits and pouts. <laughs> well, no, but even before he does that, we hear a child crying and whining, which is perfect. It's like the perfect <laughs> soundbite to have right there. And, oh you know, gosh. now, do you think that, you know, if if... You know, since they live in California, and therefore, you know, the, the restraining order, I'm assuming, was, was done in California. Does that mean that the restraining order, you know, is in, in effect anywhere in the world, anywhere in the country? You know, what happens when you're on a plane? Whose jurisdiction is that? What do you think? I imagine. I think, I think the governing court system, whoever issued the order, that order is recognized anywhere. Because you're going to make the complaint back to that jurisdiction. 
So, like, if somebody violates it in Michigan, you go to a Michigan court and say, I have a protection from a California court. You're going to go to your attorney who's going to file it in the California court who's going to say, wait, you knew you were not supposed to go within 50 feet or 50 yards or whatever it ends up being. You violated it. It's going to be back in that same court system that issued the order to begin with. Right. That, okay, that makes that makes sense. There is there's something to that. And that's when the lawyer comes out that listens to this show and goes, wrong. <laughs> but that's how I know it's been uh, how it's always been explained to me when I've been interviewed folks involved in this same kind of like I said, a lot of times I do support for folks that um, are in preventing childhood abuse and domestic abuse. And so uh, this is ironic because this tough subject comes up a lot about things that are the tools that exist to try to help families either rehab or protect people who are in abusive relationships. Right. That's true. And, and, you know, as, as, as we learned, unfortunately, you know, it, uh, the, since, since it's not, not as enforced as it should be, there are a lot of cases where, you know, people are still being harassed when they, they shouldn't be, you know, I, I don't know if oh, the yeah. case in the movie fits in though, because, you know, uh, I wouldn't mind seeing Holly, you know, deck him again. Uh, maybe that'll happen again in this movie. I, I don't know. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to wait and see. We'll have to wait till the end. That's right. And then the the the, the stewardess makes her way uh, over to Holly as this is going on. It's great. She like somehow slinks over there without anyone really you know noticing. And and she does such a phenomenal job of not really smiling. Like there's no hint of a smile, but her eyes are like don't smile that's right the client here the customers in front of me don't 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 smile but you know it's like she's biting the inside of her cheeks or something like hold it together <laughs> does a great job that's right and then i mean she, then she gets there and you know the old woman next to holly looks over also because she's she's also very interested in hearing what's going on and uh, the story goes she like whispers what did you do and she goes ah, i knocked out two of his teeth <laughs> And the stewardess's response is amazing. She goes, Would you like some champagne? And you know, she's she's very bubbling at this point. She's you know, she's she's ready to just completely, you know, she's ready to do anything for, for Holly that she needs right now because this is something that she herself couldn't do. You know, she couldn't punch out mm -hmm. someone like like Thornburg. But now that she knows someone did do it and it's a woman, so hey, this is great. It's it's done really yeah, well. It, it, uh, the, and it, it, it conveys so much in that little exchange. The fact that the stewardess said, you know, can I get you some champagne? You don't think of champagne as just because you need a glass of water. I mean, that's you're toasting something, you're cheering something, you're happy about something. It's a, it's an instantaneous conveying of, oh, my God, you took care of this same jerk off that we've been dealing with. Well done. Can I get you some champagne? Yes. <laughs> that's right. That's very true. And I mean, also, I mean, she's in business class. So the question then is, you know, is, is she allowed to to give her champagne? You know, you think that that they're saving the champagne for the first class. Um, mm. So, well, you know, they have it, but I don't know if you would have to pay for it in secondary classes. I think it's part of your first class ticket, but you know, you can buy a drink in other sections. You just don't get it as part of your ticket. Right. But, but I mean, she's offering it for free. She's not saying, you know, I'll give you some champagne, just it's five bucks for the glass. You know, it's like, you know, this is something I can give you complimentary. So that's the question of why is she mm -hmm. allowed to do that? You know, it's, it's not as if she owns the champagne. 
you know, she, she might need to, you know, at some point give a little bit of, of an explanation, you know, as to why is there a bottle of champagne that was, that was used, you know, or something like that. Right, here's what I'm going to say, just because I know it, it, it's, it's, it's a nit. They don't track it to that degree because it's embedded in all the first class tickets and it doesn't matter because everybody in first class doesn't drink the champagne. So if they have a half open bottle, they're not going to say, well, I guess you'll stock that for the next flight. They're going to they're going to dump it or use it and drink it anyway. So right. um, it, it doesn't really matter. Uh, I'm a, at, at worst, she's like, I'll pay the five dollars out of my own pocket. It's yeah, it. for sure. Especially knowing the satisfaction of that. Right. So, yeah, that makes sense. No, okay, so what did we say how much a stone was before? Because a stone is... 14 pounds. That's right, a stone is 14 pounds, correct. Mm -hmm. So if you were to calculate it, so if you have something that's 1.75 stone, so it's 24.5 pounds. You, you, they do use the decimal point there. You know, and so I want to give credit to, uh, you know, Jay Kluett, my friend from the Conair pod and from Deep Blue Sea pod. You know, for, for, for responding live as we're recording. <laughs> and uh, so uh, there you go, Jay. Shout out. Now you actually understand why I asked you the question. I know it's been a few weeks, but still, <laughs> you know, you're, you're now thinking to yourself, hmm, what, what was he asking? Why is he asking? <laughs> so, yes. Thank you, Jay. All right. So at, at this point, uh, basically what, what happens is that, uh, you know, the, the, again, the, the stewardess is really smirking. As she does this, and she at this point decides that she starts walking away to go get the, uh, uh, presumably to to go get some champagne for her. And then the shot changes, and we have two seconds at the end of this minute. Mm -hmm. And the first second that we get to see at second fifty eight is Cochrane's face. So we talked about it earlier this week about how you know what possibly happened to Cochrane, you know that maybe his face uh, you know got. Uh, smushed or got electrocuted or or something but i mean he looks like darth maul <laughs> that's what i say when i look at him now <laughs> well that's the first thing i okay you want to talk about we did i didn't personally notice anything plot wise with the timeline what i noticed instantaneously is wait a second his head went under the roller it got caught on his chest based on the camera angle just two minutes ago that's right now, not only is his face plastered in even red everywhere, he, they don't even get his neck. It stops, and you've got plenty of white flesh showing where there was no blood that dripped or drizzled, yet he's evenly covered, like, almost like he's uh, gotten a really bad sunburn. Yes, yes. But, but you can tell that, I mean, it looks like blood, or, or you know, because it's, it, it's very shiny. It's looked like paint. I, I mean, it looks like paint. Be. It's supposed to be, but but it's too even all over his face. It, even if you got smashed, the blood would drizzle and yes. drip. It wouldn't be an even pour. It looks like he put his face into a bucket and then pulled it out and said, "Okay, now lay down for the That's shot." Right. That's right. Now this is something I've never seen before. You know, every time I've seen this movie, because it it's literally a second. You you, you don't you don't notice it. And it, you know, they, they, they put, you know, Cochran in, in the uh, makeup chair just, just for this second, you know, of, of him getting zipped up in, in the, you know, in, in the bag, in the, in the body bag. Get him a body bag. <laughs> yeah. He actually, as I'm looking, he really does look like Darth Maul because he's, he's got a very dark complexion also. <laughs> you don't think so? Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
No, I can see where he's, that's exactly where I say his face looks evenly painted. It doesn't look gloopy and gooey. It doesn't look like it doesn't look like even if he had had his head half split and blood popped everywhere, it wouldn't paint this right. evenly. That's sure. Well, uh, it looks. Yeah, weird. that's what you need a, an artist for. <laughs> Which they probably found one on the set. You know, hey, just go paint his face a little bit. You know, we'll, we'll figure that out. Yeah. So once again, Jay has clarified to me as, again, live as we're talking, that it, it can be broken down into fractions. So a stone will be broken down into fractions. Okay. And that makes sense. Well, I, what, what bothers me is you're still having to break it down into smaller pieces. So why wouldn't you have the smaller pieces as your weight? Why make one stone count for such a wide range of weight? The pound can be broken down into ounces, but most people were thinking of a pound is as small as you need to go. They measure babies in pounds. They measure adults in pounds. They measure dogs and cats in pounds. Well, that's what we do. That's what we do in America. But in England, it's done differently. Yeah, it's just weird to me that you have to, in your head, convert, oh, my little child's about a a tenth of a stone. Like, uh, okay, so he's 1.4 pounds. Okay, I got it. Right. I mean, basically, okay, I've, I've now looked it up. They, they pretty much only use it for uh, body weight. You know, it's not used for anything else. So I think that makes it a little easier. <laughs> you know, so maybe if you do get on a scale. Well, yeah, and I think that you're right. I, I'm pretty sure they use, like, the pound. It, it, we use that here in the United States, but I believe that is a U.K. weight as well. Things are weight in pounds. They're not in kilograms. Correct. Well, where did, where did America get the idea from? <laughs> the colonists, you know, you know that, mm-hmm. right from the UK. I guess it makes sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess then you you would think, you know, how do you okay? This is the weight in kilo. This is the weight in this, and we're gonna move it over to to pounds. So then you have to do, you know, the the different uh, calculations in order to figure that out. Which is why I just say, "Hey Siri," and she helps me all. There you go. I ask. I do it in the kitchen all the time. I'll be like. Crap! I can't remember how many cups in a in a in a quart. I can't remember how many quarts in a gallon. I'll have it, but I want to make sure before I start making something. I'll ask all the time. I'll either ask my Alexa or I'll ask my. They're definitely smart assistants when it comes to going out very quickly and getting that for me. So when I get my hands full and I'm measuring something and I can't remember, like, oh crap! How many of that? <laughs> Well, you know, the question then is, how do you decide uh, whether you want to ask, uh, you know, Siri or Lexi or Alexa? How do you decide that? Um, well, it depends. If I've got if I've got my if I've got my phone by me and I'm not in the kitchen, then it's my phone. If I'm in the kitchen, it could be either because we've got the speakers in the kitchen. Ah, okay. Our smart speaker. <laughs> okay, that that makes sense. All right, so Alan, you have anything else for this minute? Uh, for this bloody ending of a minute? <laughs> I'm going to go out on a limb and say, I think we've talked about everything we can possibly talk about and more. <laughs> well, we didn't get to the script yet. Now we got to get into the script. Oh, yeah, that's right. right. So so after after the, the stewardess then tells Thornburg to, to park it, okay, so it says Thornburg simmers. And then he sees Holly. And then it says, Thornburg calls out for the stewardess and says, Mr. Thornburg, you cannot monopolize my... And then he cuts her off and says, you cannot put me near that woman. Excuse me? Camera adjusts to feature Holly and the stewardess's growing fascination with her. 
He means he's filed a restraining order against me. I'm not allowed within 50 feet of him, 50 yards. And by seating me here, you're violating a court order. I could sue you with this, this airline. This woman has assaulted me and besmirched my reputation. I think it's much better. Ooh, he changed it to embarrassed. Humiliated me in public. And then it says the stewardess kneels next to Holly and says, what'd you do? So I knocked out two of his teeth. And there's a pause. And then she says, would you like some champagne? <laughs> it, uh, mentions the gunman's body. It follows it pretty yeah. closely. Yeah, it does. They they switch the besmirch. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the that's the only thing. And and again, I like the fact that humiliated humiliated me in public. But he deserved that one. So the gunman's body is being zipped into a body bag. Our view of the mangled head and shoulders mercifully brief. <laughs> well, mm-hmm. it's it's only a second. <laughs> you gotta you know. It is it is brief. Yes, it is. It's, I don't know if it needs to be mercifully because it's so hokey, but okay, fine. Yeah, that's true. So every Wednesday we have a segment called Off the Beaten Track Aviation Edition, uh, where basically my guests will give some sort of story, mm-hmm. anecdote, adventure, misadventure, something that's happened to them over the course of their life that is somehow related to an airplane, an airline, an airport, or something that happens in the sky. I don't know. So, uh, Alan, you have a story for us? I do. Uh, a lot of people know that I have a... Um a revulsion to feet, especially bare feet, and more so male men's feet. I, I feel like they're they're disgusting, they're nasty, they're hideous, they should be locked away, hidden away. You don't go in public. If you're not at the beach or at a pool, you should have those things put away because they just don't belong in public. And I know where it came from. Early on in my career, when I was with uh, IBM, I was, I was flying a lot. I would go out every other weekend, it felt, or every other week, I would be gone for a couple of days. And I got into the habit of airport travel. So I just kind of wouldn't learn how to deal with the summer storms and whatever, flight delays. Told you, I think, I think off air that I got stuck in, or maybe I think it was one of the episodes where I got stuck in uh, Charles de Gaulle Airport. Our connecting flight missed, and they had to put us up overnight in a restaurant and a hotel, feed us and things to the airport to continue the flight home. One day, I'm sitting there. It's a Friday, and, I, and it's one of those hot, muggy, I'm just, I'm ready to get home. And I've got a seat. I've got a window seat. You know, I've learned I like the aisle better, but I had a window seat. So I'm kind of stuck in the side. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I'm like, I'm getting the worst, like rotten cheese funk smell. I'm like, what? What is going on? Did somebody like, like toss their cookies or something and they didn't clean it up? I'm like, it was just, it was, it was gagging me. And along the wall, the dude behind me had taken his socks and shoes off. And it propped one of his foot, wedged it between the wall and the seat, which had my armrest. So his foot was literally right below my arm. Foot stench was just wafting up under my nose. Was was his name Dell? No, I, it wasn't Dell. But I'm telling you. No, I'm telling you. I don't know what it was, but I know what you're referring to. No, it was just, it, it, and it wasn't, it was just, it was a horrific experience. I felt sick to my stomach. I was like, oh, and then who does that? Who gets on a plane, a public airplane, back home at their, tel- you know, in front of their TV, sitting back in an easy chair, pulling their socks and shoes off to stretch their freaking funky toes out for me? No, oh, <laughs> it's horrifying. Just, just, oh, it's, it's causing me to feel sick now telling the story. And this is like, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I can see that as a problem. Yeah, I have a thing against feet, but that was just horrific. You know, people, I get why, you know, there was a time, I, and I appreciate that there was a time 
where you had to be of a certain stature to be able to afford to fly. And that stature, you understood you had to dress appropriate and act appropriate. And that, you know, you were uh, playing the part of upper pocket influence. Kind of miss that because when you think you can treat the plane as your, as your living room and, and you think that you can just do that, that's just, it's wrong. There is, there is no way to excuse that period. End of story. Okay. That, that is fair. <laughs> Thank you for that story, Alan. You're welcome. Thanks for making me relive it. I, you could, you chose what to talk about. You can't blame me for that. Oh, I knew the second, I, the second I read this question, like I know exactly what I'm going to. Uh, okay, so there you go. So <laughs> it's my, it's my. Of all the flight stories I've had, this is always the one that pops in my head when they say, "What was your worst experience?" This is it. Of all the, I've been, I've been stuck on a tarmac for hours. I've been left at an airport. We've had bad weather where you. This is by. Are the worst that's ever you sound exactly like Neil Page. So there you go. You can sit through the most boring insurance seminars for hours. <laughs> All right. mm-hmm. So Alan, why don't you tell people how they can get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, if you missed out on earlier in the week, I'll do this quickly. It's thewilderride.com. From there, you can get all the links to everything else. We do movies. First two seasons, anyway. Movies by Gene Wilder. We did Young Frankenstein, followed by Blazing Saddles. We turned it into more of a talk show. No matter what, whether you go back and relive the movies by one minute at a time, or you go back and take the guests we talked about for the next couple of seasons, all of them, I think, still relevant. And all of them a lot of fun. All meant to just keep you entertained and having a good time. All right. Very cool. And uh, while you're doing that, you can go rate, review, and subscribe on any podcast you might be using to listen to this show. Finding me is very easy. Just do a quick search for Movie Rob Minute. You can find me on Facebook. You can find me on Twitter. Or you can find me on my website, MovieRobMinute.com. So, Alan, you you want to come back again tomorrow? You, know, you feel like maybe it might not be tomorrow. Yeah. It could be like a few weeks from now or something like that. But uh, hopefully not. <laughs> hopefully it will be tomorrow. No, I I won't. I want to. I want to keep. It feels like we're going to be returning back to John McClane. I just. I get this. I, I mean, we're seeing the body bag. I'd like to think we're back at the airport and trying to figure out how to unravel more of this mystery. All right, great. So until tomorrow, yippee ki yippee ki If you're fond of sand dunes and salty air, quaint little villages. Yeah.